0: Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Vincent Sai, who is the CEO of the Modality Group, which is a GP super partnership. Some of the key things Vincent has said in this podcast, he emphasizes the notion of family at work, mindset, the importance of working with like-minded individuals, He also emphasised the modality group is a partnership. It's not a dictatorship and not one size fits all. And just provides a really good piece of advice around assuming positive intent and assuming people are trying to do the right thing for the right reasons. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. So as always, the only thing we ever ask is if you like it, it would be great if you could share it. Also, maybe leave us a rating and review and enjoy. And I'll see you in the next episode. Hi, Vincent. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm great. Thanks, Tara.
0: Okay. So our paths crossed at a conference in Milton Keynes, had a lovely dinner with you guys. And was just learning more about what you guys do at Modality and the reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast for those of people that are not in primary care, Modality, or how would you describe Modality actually?
1: Yeah, well, Tara, thanks for having me on the podcast. We are a traditional NHS super partnership practice. We are obviously a bit different to most because we're quite large. We have 450,000 patients our primary care list and we cut across nine regions and 50 sites but we are still the traditional partnership model but obviously you know, augmented to work at scale in that regard we also run uh, 20 outpatient services for hospitals as a out of hospital solution so over the years we've gone from being just primary care focused, and we still are it's really important that we remain focused on core but we've also worked across the system and our patients is a great example where we're trying to collaborate more closely with colleagues in secondary care to close the divide.
0: And what's your role in modality?
1: I'm a fellow partner within the group. I'm a bit different to the rest because uh, I'm, I'm not a clinician. So I'm a fellow with the Institute of Tata Accountants. So I come with sort of more of the accounting and finance background. And more broadly, I have had a lot of experience up in the insurance world, more on the commissioning side that is multinational because I'm originally from Singapore, grew up in Australia, worked in Asia, Hong Kong, South Korea, and I've also spent some time in the US. I found myself, not by design, really all by chance, having learned quite a lot about health systems all around different parts of the world.
0: What made you settle in the UK?
1: So my wife loves it here in London. So that's where we live now, with London home since 2009. And there were many opportunities for me to head back to the U.S. or to work elsewhere. But this is where she really likes in the U.K. And so, as they say, you know, uh, happy wife, happy life. So, uh, so here we are. <laughs> so, so we've been very well settled here. The real honor and and privilege learning about the NHS and continue to work work in it and hoping to make a difference.
0: You just reminded me when we first met you shared a picture of your kids and you've got like a bit of a claim to fame where were they
1: so I have a whole clan so I have four kids <laughs> and we've been very fortunate that they're great and so yeah my uh, by chance again right uh, my my wife and my two sons actually in the latest Ant-Man movie yeah. that is a interesting experience for them
0: Cool, course you have to fame how long has modality been established for
1: Yeah, we were formed officially on July 2009 and uh, two practices came together then. You know how it's a small world, right? Especially in any local health system. So GPs in particular always find themselves in the same meetings, right? With commissioners and various things. We have our founding partners. First, it's really important that they get along. There's a like-mindedness and they just decided to come together saying, hang on, there must be something here that we can do together to work at scale more. So that's really where it started. And again, this was in Lausanne, two practices in Lausanne, one of the poorest parts of the UK. And so that's where it began. But over the years, it starts with a lot of just grafting, just working together, figuring it out, you know, what it really means. And I would still say we're still learning. And every step of growing up, it's not the same deepness of steps, if you know what I'm saying. So we moved from 25,000, then we we got to 50,000 and then different opportunities open up at that level different challenges and then we move to 150,000 i think that's the next step you know again a different step and yeah. then we got to the 300,000 then we are you know currently 450 as we stand and I should add that we obviously thought it was important to grow and to work at scale but it wasn't like a predatory or it wasn't like an aggressive marketing strategy. We've yeah. never really done that. It's always been word of mouth. And so our, you know, our motivations are quite different overall in that sense.
0: And I think one of the main reasons why I wanted to get you on the podcast is that in my circles, from a primary care network perspective, so it is very limited, but when you're in a primary care network and you have got a practice, which is part of a super partnership, That really changes the dynamic. And sometimes there is a perception of, you know, like them and us, like we're independent. They're part of a super partnership. How they make decisions is different from us. And I think it's just really interesting. Like they're really money grabbing. (laughs) There's all these perceptions. And I just think it'd be nice to hear from somebody from the inside. I think everyone has their own views, but I think what does it mean to be part of a super partnership? Why would a practice come to you? What are they looking for and what do you provide them?
1: So we are in, I think, 19 primary care networks and we have every combination you could think of, right? So we have where we are the PCN, right? With only modality, only practices. And then there's a mix. And then within the mix, economy or setup we are sometimes the majority sometimes the other way and then just because we're the majority doesn't always mean we are the clinical directors i think it's important to get it right locally and this is our mindset okay and and there's no perfect we don't seek or need to be the lead or or to drive everything just because we are bigger But we need to find ways to work with colleagues. You know, I think as a profession, now more so than ever, everyone just needs to sort of align more than divide. And I think we often have very diverse views and strong views. We sometimes make the profession look not as coherent as it could be in front of NHS England or policymakers. So we're sometimes seen as quite a difficult profession to sort of work with when in reality we're not. It's just that we, we have a different DNA, isn't it, in primary care or, or the profession. And it's not always fully understood. Now, in terms of modality from a super partnership or practice standpoint, the first step is on back office. So there are many things that can be done in one place, right? And doesn't affect care directly, but it takes up a lot of a GP partner's time because it's a business to run. So finance, HR, CQC, patient complaints. Various things over the years, we've begun to figure out how to do this at scale in one place. Or it doesn't it have to be physically in one place now, right? Everything is a virtual, with a virtual team. But we're large enough to be able to have that focus, which is helpful. When we look at practices or when practices approach us, we never discriminate in terms of how much money they make. So it, your money is important, but not the deciding factor. Our most important bit is like-mindedness and the values. We offer resilience because we have more capacity in how we organize on back office. We are able to make investments together because, yeah, together we're stronger and bigger in that way, but not perfect. You know, I'm sure, you know, we made plenty of mistakes along the way, but we are committed. So, you know, the commitment is to primary care. Can modality as a model continue to thrive and to make a difference to patients and on the ground? So we do a lot of that. And one good example of investments is our bots. We have invested in automation and we use bots to run functions 24-7. And it covers mundane things that happens day to day. And it's worked well. It was a bit of a gamble for us because we're no tech outfit and we don't try to pretend. But it felt like it was a measured gamble that we're willing to take. And it's paid off so far. And it's been very interesting.
0: So what exactly do your bots do? And are you able to share broadly what was the investment and the ongoing investment? Because I think a lot of change does require investment. And I think sometimes people may opt out before they even understand what it could do.
1: I think we all need to keep an open mind to technology and new things, or really, even new ways of working. You know, look at the R's roles for PCNs. There needs to be an open mindedness to invite other colleagues into the family, right? Because by the way, any PCNs that don't quite integrate the R's roles into practice will remain very challenged because then there is the us and them in that regard. And I think it's the only way is to integrate it in. And, and actually the question you asked earlier about this modality sitting there as us and them. There's that, but hopefully there's enough trust on the ground and working relationship that it's about working together that matters more than the business form and who's trying to do what. It's about optimizing resources and resilience than about money. I think many colleagues would agree if it was about the money, then there's many other ways to make money faster and easier than to be grafting in primary care. I think we have chosen to make this our vocation because it matters. And money pays bills; it's important. And we need to self-respect. We need to respect the value we bring. But it isn't about becoming, you know, millionaires or billionaires in the profession. You know, I think many colleagues have decided to serve their communities, and they're doing everything they can to make it work. So, so it's about not running ourselves into the ground, but but balancing that. So sorry, I digressed. Uh, so. So our bots we've learned how to introduce these members to the family it's weird because you can't really touch or feel them or you it just it, it's not tangible it's just there we haven't done anything fancy we we have what they call repeat process automation bots so they you script them to for example we we have online consultations and when it comes in it comes to an inbox for example and some Poor team member has to sit there and sort of organize it and put it into the right places. A bot can do that. Okay. And a bot can work 24 seven running overnight the investigations in other area we're looking at, you know, results and, and not for all results types because it has different levels of complexity, but both the more simpler ones, if, you know, we can use the bots to say, Oh, it fell into this range. Yeah. Look at these conditions. Yeah. It is normal. And it automatically files it. So team member do not need to do that. So there's various things. We've done clinic mirroring for our our outpatients' work with the hospitals, clinics versus ours, just to facilitate integration more across the providers. And and we're looking at document management as well. So we get so many documents. I think at Modality, we have 80,000 documents a month and a whole bunch of them are on paper. There's things in which there's standard letters and a bot can read the letters and say, oh, you got the gist of it. And then it can be filed rather than sort of taking up clinician time does that help?
0: Yeah, it does. I think it is really, really helpful. And I think that you talk a lot about mindset. And I think that mindset, I mean, when we were at the conference and your colleague delivered the presentation, I wish we could have recorded like the reaction of the crowd, because it was like, some people were like nodding along, smiling, some people were just like, You know, you blew their mind. (laughs) You know, like how could you trust? How could people adopt that? It's not secure. What about errors? So the mindset of rolling that out and being in potentially in a network, that's just so far away from their radar. It's an interesting dynamic. Does everybody in your network do they have a choice in what they use? Do they have to use that bot function or not?
1: So Tara, I I think I should clarify, right? So As a partnership, we're one business. So all partners are owners and and whatnot, but we've chosen to be a partnership, not a dictatorship. So this is one of the the biggest dilemmas, not even a big dilemma because we found the answer in ourselves very quickly. But when you join a bigger group and you're part of a bigger team, you know, there is the questions like, why are you in it? What's in it for you in that sense? Right. And I think the, there's a misconception about large being very corporate or as I said dictatorial by the way it's just the culture or, or the DNA you choose to be in, in any organization so there are significant strengths of big organizations being very very regimented in that process and you know do it this way or not and and I think that's many pluses but then it also could sometimes stifle innovation and and, and actually the localism because you know we're in nine regions now You know, no one region is the same, but many things are the same. So it's just to find that right balance. So we have never forced any of our practices to do anything. However, what we do is we put it in place. And we always have some first movers. You know, they're, you know, you gotta channel where the energies are. So you know, when we started this idea, all our lead partners were saying, yeah, should we embrace digital? Shall we have a go at this? You know what if it completely falls flat you know are we okay are we we doing anything crazy and the answer is we figure it out we pilot it we put it aside we try various things and then when it's working you know it's very natural people are like yes we can turn the bots on for this now and I neglected to say I don't know if it's the right thing or not at the end it feels right to us we invested in the bots not to get some cash ROI you know a lot of people talk about investing in technology and you need to get the return in investment you know what's that roi and we can calculate it you can argue but it's not like we reduce our headcount Yeah, you know, we didn't do this to replace people's jobs our main motivation with automation is to improve the working day of the team once you go crazy filing and look at us how many thousands of documents i just talked about how many investigations results How do we make life a little bit better for our team members? And then we saw maybe some automation will work. So we've not made any jobs redundant. We've basically invested in this, but we feel we've got a great return because, you know, it maybe save a bit of time. Actually, we save quite a bit of time. I think we've got 47,000 hours of time saved in the sense that the bots have done that much work. If the bots were not there, a human being would have to do those mundane work actually another great example i know i'm jumping around here but covid results for colleagues who have EMUS as their system that came right into the inboxes right we got the bots to do that so the clinician doesn't need to even spend one second worrying about it that wasn't a requirement on system one and by chance again we have 50 50 of our population or practices half is on system one and half is on EMUS. so that was the other thing whatever we built or developed We know it worked in both. So we have many interesting dimensions to play with because we have a big playground. We have a willingness to try things. You know, it's not a be all and end all. And we never need to force anyone to play because you know, when you force something, it usually don't last. So we have this culture amongst us and we, as a result, have significant, I'll call it, variation on how we work. So we're not like a group that's saying, this is the care model and that's it. This is this, this is this, this is that. We wanted to make sure our partners or practices joining retain that autonomy to do what they think is right for their population or the list. But then we enable all the backend, you know, we take away the mark of the finance and the pieces, and then obviously, hopefully things like automation would help along the way. So anyway, so that's sort of our mentality. <music>
0: The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you proudly in partnership with 10,000 donors and their Gob for Good campaign. Gob for Good is all about getting as many people as possible to join the stem cell registry. Only 3% of the UK are registered to be stem cell donors and only 0.4% of the global population. If you or a loved one have the devastating news that you have been diagnosed with a blood cancer, the chances of you finding your blood stem cell match is significantly reduced if you have a minority ethnic heritage it is really really simple all you need to do is click into the show notes or visit the Gob for good website at gobforgood.com and get yourself signed up to the registry you could one day receive that life-saving call or one day you may need that life-saving call now let's jump back into this week's episode So thinking more about you and your journey, what would you consider your strength in your current role today from a work perspective? What is the thing that you think that you're really, really good at?
1: I do many things every day and the variety or the diversity of things is quite astounding in that sense. I carry the title of a CEO for the partnership and it's a you know very fancy title and stuff, but ultimately I'm a fellow partner i'm not a hierarchical type person so i'm very hands-on you know very open to feedback for all staff levels i think one of the strengths and this is important to me is engaging at all levels and that there's no work that's beneath anybody so when there's an issue i had a chance to speak with my team and my partners i'm i'm always ready to muck in no matter at what level i think that's one hopefully colleagues will will agree that that's a strength I think the other thing that I believe in is doing things that last. So relationships matter to me. So I don't—I just don't do things for the sake of it. You know, I do things to make sure, especially with the work family modality, right? It's my work family that we understanding and taking care of people as them. And it's not just about the work. Obviously there's work, but it's better if there's something binding us all together in a human way. So I think I have a decent breed of relationships and putting time in to make sure we have that. And, and I know many partners well. And I think I'm reaching my limit on how many people I can remember, right? Because I have 100, <laughs> 135 partners and you know, we all have a personal connection in some way, some deeper than others. But when you're a partnership with, you know, general partnership with unlimited liability, right? We still the traditional NHS partnership, as I said at the start. You can't just have anyone join the family, you know you need to have you know the rapport that matters to me and and I hope my partners would agree that you know I'm always approachable and it's about the personal first rather than just work.
0: What do you think your one hundred and thirty five partners would be surprised to know about you?
1: Well, actually, I think they'll be surprised that I do sleep. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I think that's what a lot of guys will say, man, you're always working and, you know, you're so, and, and I am, to be honest, I'm a terrible role model when it comes to work-life balance, but a lot of it is because I'm committed. I've chosen this to be my vocation. So when you have that mindset, it isn't work per se, days melt into night and stuff, but I see us as like a family office, family members everywhere. I'm around all the time. And I think, you know, people always think I don't sleep I I sleep more than they think. So.
0: So this is a question that typically only women get asked, and that is around work-life balance. You mentioned that you're married and that you've got four kids, and it sounds like you're a bit of a workaholic. So how do you manage it? Because there's lots of people in a similar situation. You love your work, you love your life, and there's just not enough hours in the day. So yeah, how do you do it and feel good about it?
1: It's not perfect, but I can't do this without the support of my family. I have a very understanding wife because I'm on the road quite a bit. And I think my kids are very understanding too, because they know what I'm doing is important to me. And I try to explain to them the difference we're making on the ground. So I may not directly impact it, but I am in a key position to make sure team members are in the best place to help patients and the community. You know, they've helped out on COVID clinics, and I try to loop them in where it makes sense. And again, you know, just trying to balance, right? Trying to balance and carving out the time. I think it's not the quantity i think sometimes it's the quality of the time spent too right i'm actually a certified sort of fa coach for grassroots football so i do that on weekends and that's quite stressful to be honest with you because you want to make sure there's enough kids showing up for the match and you know there's actually quite a lot of logistics involved and and you never want the team to be disappointed you know because they're kids and they're growing up and stuff but but i've done this for a long time you know if i've trained the kids since they were six years old so but it's quite therapeutic because i get to scream at them all the time uh, as an artist, <laughs> and they don't get offended i'm such a familiar figure are them... you
0: sure they, they may be petrified
1: no no you see with the team they'll come you high five all the time and even as like what did you think you were doing i don't know it's, it's a different way of venting frustrations but you know it's really nice you know especially with the kids growing up and i do the under thirteen. You know, they're in that tricky teenage years too. But, you know, so, so far, so good is finding that balance. So that is a good example where I try to focus some time and and be part of sort of, you know, like my, my sons. And I, I help out on under 11s as well where I can. So, so anyway, it's things like that, that we do and we do different things as a family. So yeah, it's been okay. But obviously, it's everything's about finding the balance.
0: Even though you've got a good understanding of healthcare, you kind of weren't necessarily brought up in healthcare initially. What piece of advice has somebody given you that served you really well? Because I wasn't brought up in the NHS. You know, like it is a different, I mean, every industry is different and there's every industry has nuances. And I just think, yeah, for somebody coming from outside of healthcare, coming into work in a practice or the NHS, it's a big culture shock. We, they, us act differently.
1: It's not just in healthcare. The world is a very complicated place. The one piece of advice that I was and that I've gotten, I've used as much as I can over the years, is to assume positive intent. So this may not be the answer you're expecting with the question you just asked, right? But I think if people apply that principle a little bit more in everything that they do, I think things will be easier and better. And so it doesn't matter whether it's in healthcare, whether it's private, public, just that notion of assuming positive intent. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you foolishly do that and then you know get taken advantage of or crazy things. But if people took that little step back every time, you know, things usually work out for better. I'm sure you've seen this too. The zillion emails we get every day, right? And then suddenly you're like, hang on, what happened? What's, you know, Why is Billy saying this? Why is Jane saying that? And then 50 emails later, you're like, what is this about? Usually it starts off with someone not having maybe assumed that positive intent and taken it the wrong way. And a lot of tension and time is saved by just giving people that positive benefit of the doubt. Or, you know, just pick up the phone rather than piling on. But anyway, so that's something that I practice every day as best as I can.
0: What would you class, I don't like the word weakness, I also like an area for improvement in your skill set, in your knowledge. Is there anything that you would like to improve on? And you don't have to, just wanted
1: to see. Plenty plenty look no one's perfect or whoever think they are are actually going to miss out because I think if you don't keep an open mind being diverse about ideas just actually knowing what you are good at or not and surrounding yourself with the right team members to help to work together as a team I have many many weaknesses I think I mean look first one is as I said it it seems okay but have I balanced it correctly or towards work versus family when I look back and regret that, you know, and things like that, right? But, you know, you don't want to live a life with regrets. You're just going to keep looking forward. And as long as you are at peace with you're doing good things and doing the right thing overall, I you know, uh, so, so that's key. Look, I, I'm in a partnership with so many clinicians. I never pretend to be a doctor. I never will be one. So I never tried to venture into the clinical lens of the world. I got my partners to do that. And similarly, they trust in me to sort out finance or some of the technical things that i'm uh, meant to be good at so uh but i still learn new things right there's so many rules pensions that structures you know it's complicated out there and where i don't know stuff i ask i've got no ego it's like "Mm, i'm not so sure i've learned about this before but i better check so i think i got Plenty to learn and not perfect by any means, but have a mindset of being open to asking questions and figuring things out.
0: What do you think lies in store for the future of general practice and the partnership model?
1: We are all under a lot of pressure in the system right now. There are significant variation in in expectations or disconnects in expectations for the public about what the job of general practice really is i think there's a lot of frustrations with colleagues in secondary care and other sectors community care in primary care you know there's you know everyone's tired so i think there are big challenges ahead in aligning and i think the workforce plan has come out recently that talks about the significant gaps we have and i think the workforce plan you know sounds okay but it's not helpful in the near term anyway so it really needs leaders to come together and put the egos aside and just team up and just say okay if i did this part can you do that part so there's a bit of like broader alignment you know i'm biased obviously right i'm in primary care there's no question right from what i've seen from many parts of the world primary care is the anchor or the bedrock of many health systems right and it deserves to be valued more than how it is now. Um, it's really hard, right, for team members who are really trying to do their best and only to be told it's not good enough anyway. And it's not fair in that sense. But we cannot play victim. We shouldn't play victim, right? We should say, okay, what are the bits that's within our control that we can do a bit better? And let's chip away at that. And let's keep the faith. And over time, if you keep doing good things, people will recognize that in due course. So don't expect the immediate gratification of like clapping and being the hero, you know, like that's the wrong reason to do certain things. So if you're looking for the long-term, can we make the workplace better for our teams? By the way, without the teams, there's no service. So we do need to prioritize our teams. Can we explain to the public, to our patients, what we're trying to do? Why are we under pressure? And just own up where we're not doing things well. Bring people more along the way and and hopefully, well, I believe long term, it will be fine. But there are some key steps we need to take to help ourselves and hopefully with the right leadership nationally and from government and NHS England, we can sort of find that common ground and get our system into a more sustainable place. Because right now it feels very wobbly, but it will pass. And I'm pretty upbeat about it, like looking at working more at scale. The automation has high potential. We are looking at reducing the reliance on GPS and the you know the diverse workforce. We did a lot of apprenticeship kickstart type things to bring younger people into the the system. We are even doing things internationally and modality as well, looking at that and how that could be part of the solution near term and then long term. So there's plenty we can do, and it's just keeping the faith if that makes sense.
0: I think that is a fantastic way to end. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get hold of you?
1: Just drop me an email. I'm working all the time anyway. Uh, (laughs) Vincent.Sci at NHS.net. Happy to connect to share anything that you guys have queries. And if I can't answer it, I'll help signpost it to a colleague or someone else. But always open to get emails.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Kat.